The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Well, good morning. Hope you guys have been enjoying your summer and uh, making some good memories over these months, over these weeks. Memory is a very interesting thing. It's amazing what comes to mind by just the mention of a word. And I just want to ask a few of you, when you hear the word Littleton, do any of you remember something from that word? Not too many. If I say Columbine High School, how many of you remember something from that word? Okay, for those of you who don't remember, back in uh, April 20th, 1999, two students entered their school and with guns shot down 12 of their classmates and one of their teachers. And uh, Littleton is in Denver. My school, the school that I go to, Denver Seminary, is just 10 minutes from there. And this year when I went to the school, um, they had a memorial site that was made. I hadn't seen this before. And uh, I just went and spent some time there in the middle of the... Uh, oh, the pictures aren't showing in the front. Uh, in the middle of this garden are, is a round circle that has plaques for each of the students. And their parents or loved ones have written something uh, to, about them on these plaques. One of the students, her name is Rachel Joy Scott, and uh, her prayer, her mom had written a, a, a part of her journal said that in her journal just days before, she had written, Lord, I want to serve you. Lord, I want you to use my life to be a blessing to others. And uh, the day that this happened, April 20th, uh, one of the shooters went up to her and just looked at her and said, do you believe in God? And she said, you know I do. And he shot her. And she was the first one in the library to be killed that day. I don't know uh, what was going through her mind as far as the uh, memory she had or the, the things that were uh, just going through her head at that time, but I do believe at the core of her being, she remembered that God had died for her. She remembered that there was a Savior who gave everything. He gave his life so that she could find life in him. And that gave her courage to stand strong in Christ in a time where she was asked to deny her faith. So I just want to encourage you today, how are you preparing yourself to be strong in Christ? I don't know what tomorrow holds. You don't know what it holds. If something comes your way, are you preparing your heart with God now? You're saying, God, I surrender to you now, and I trust that regardless of what comes, whether it's pleasant or hard, I will surrender in that moment, and I will let you be glorified in my life. I pray that's the case for each of us. I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to John 18. John 18 is the start of the Passion narrative. From chapters 13 to 17, We've been talking about what's called the farewell discourse. This is Jesus more or less in the upper room having his final moments with his disciples. We've seen the washing of the disciples' feet, Jesus describing himself as a true vine. There's been many beautiful things in the midst of these chapters, but the whole thing has been preparing us for darkness because Christ has been saying, I have to die. So the farewell course, discourse prepares us for darkness, and now the passion, the darkness arrives. 18, 19, these are dark chapters. And we need to be mindful that Jesus went into this willingly for us. 
All four Gospels talk about the Passion narrative, and there's many things that they share in common. All the main events are the same. They're in harmony with each other. That Jesus was on trial, that Jesus was uh, executed, that Jesus was buried, that he was raised again. All those things are uh, in harmony in our Gospels between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John has some details because he's an eyewitness. He has some details that are unique to his gospel, but they're still in harmony with everything. They just add a little bit of a different perspective and, and sometimes need to be thought through, and there's different opinions of how things fit together. But you just need to be aware of that as we go into uh, this passage. I'm going to ask you to stand with me, and I'll be reading verses 1 to 9. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and said, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, said Jesus. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Judas said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, Who is it that you want? And they asked, they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those that you gave me. Please be seated. So Jesus has just had a beautiful time with his disciples. He's been praying for the disciples. He's been praying for the world. And now he goes with his disciples across the Kidron Valley. It's a, a valley between Jerusalem. There's a valley and there's a mountain called the Mount of Olives. And in there, there's a, an area called Gethsemane. It's an olive grove. And this is a place where Jesus often went with his disciples. So he's there. He's in a place that they often go to. And all of a sudden, this group of men come. Torches, lanterns, swords. And the Bible tells us that Jesus knew everything that was going to be happening during this arrest, during this time of absolute surrender on his part. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it that you want? Just take note of that little phrase. Jesus did not go and hide somewhere. He was not scared about what was going to take place because of what it was out of his control. He went out. When these guys came, his reaction was, I'll meet you. This is my time. He went out and he said, who is it that you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. The next phrase is really interesting to me. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Uh, in Greek, it just doesn't say I am he, it just says I am. Now, as we've been going through John, we know that there's seven I am statements, right? We have the, the pictures here on our banners. And the seven I am statements are, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the gate, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the true vine. All these statements point to who Christ is, his deity, his character. And all the time, he's clearly been telling people, this is who I am. You don't have to guess. I'm clearly telling you, 
This is who I am. And I don't know if the Roman soldiers knew that his teaching. They probably didn't. But when they heard Christ say, when he said, who, who are you looking for? And he goes, I am. The Bible says that these men drew back and they fell to the ground. None of the other Gospels mention this fact. And I remember the first time I read this in John, I was like, really? That happened? I don't know how many people were there. It could have been hundreds. There could have been, uh, it could have been hundreds of people coming out to get him. Or it could have been a handful of 50 or, or so. But they all fell to the ground. Falling to the ground in the Bible is what happens when you encounter divine revelation. That is just the natural thing. If you really encounter God, when you read the Bible, you see people, they just fall down. And we can look at that. Really, would that happen? You know what's really more amazing to me? That Jesus, in this situation, didn't just have everybody slain. He could have done that. He could have said, you guys want to take me? Away with you. The Bible tells us that someday every knee will bow to Christ. Every single knee will bow. So the question I ask myself and the question I ask you is, have we bowed our knee to our Savior? And I sure hope that we say yes. I hope many people in this room have said, yes, I've done that. But the other question is, do I do that regularly? I only enter into a saving relationship once, but just regularly. When I think of Jesus, is my natural reaction just to say, bow? Is that the posture of my heart? Bow. Whatever you want, Lord. Because when I'm in your presence, I know how life is meant to be. And I'm meant to be surrendered to you. Because you are ultimately everything that's good. And I can trust you. You deserve that for my life. So these people are bowed down. And Jesus comes to them and says, So who is it that you want? And they stand up and they say, Jesus of Nazareth. They don't say Jesus the Christ. They just say as Jesus this man from this town. And he says, I told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. One of the things to be mindful here is Jesus is protecting his disciples. He's saying, who do you want? They didn't say Jesus and his disciples, Jesus and his men. They just said Jesus. So now he's saying, okay, if that's who you want, here I am. These are my guys here, but you let them go because you don't have authority to take them. That hasn't been your mandate. Jesus is protecting his disciples because he knows that they need that protection. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those that you gave me. We're told that except for Judas, who was never really part of this group of disciples. This really helps us remember about Jesus being our good shepherd. This is a beautiful picture again in John. I am the good shepherd. This isn't a shepherd who has to prompt his sheep from behind and prod them with an electric prodder. This is the shepherd who loves them, knows them by name. They love him. They hear his voice and they follow. He leads from the front and the sheep follow. That's the kind of God we have. That's the kind of God I follow. And we have to ask ourselves, is that the God that I experience? Do I sometimes feel in my faith that, oh, I'm feeling like he's just pushing me around? Is it, is it God then who's doing that? Or is it my own? Like, we, God leads us as a good shepherd. I just want to encourage you to be mindful of the voices that you listen to. And when it's God's voice, 
You bow and you follow. And that's where we find life. Right after Jesus says this, that this has happened so that you know, no one will be lost, Peter grabs his sword. He's got this, from what we can tell, a short Roman sword, and he thrusts it at the, the servant of the high priest, Malchus. And as far as we know, this sword is just a little sword. It's not meant for slicing. It's meant for stabbing. And it seems like Peter went right for his head, intending to kill him, and he missed, and he sliced off his ear. He wasn't a swordsman. He was a fisherman. <laughs> and Peter, 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 he, he loves his Savior, but he's so misdirected so often. I don't know if you can connect to that in life. That happens to me too, right? Sometimes there's zeal without knowledge. And this is Peter very much. And Jesus commanded Peter, Put away your sword. Shall I not drink the cup the Father had given me? Again, we need to remember that this story, um, this looks courageous on Peter's part, right? Oh, I'm going to, I'll protect you, Jesus. But we need to remember that Jesus had already told him that this had to happen. I have to die. This is the redemptive story, guys. So Peter was just really being disobedient. He was trying to say, Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm going to protect you because I can do that. And Jesus is so patient. And he says, put away your sword, Peter. You don't understand. You don't understand what I'm up to now. You are thinking the thoughts of man, not the thoughts of God. Put away your sword. Don't take things into your own hand. Even when you have the right motive, it's going the wrong way. And then Jesus says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Peter is carrying a sword, which in this case is a picture of rebellion. And Christ says, I hold a cup. And this cup is the wrath of God. And I hold it willingly for your sake. And I hold it not because the world pushes it on me. I'm not doing it because there's this mob here. I'm not doing it because the religious leaders are trying to try me. I'm doing this because my father says, this is what you're to do, son. Because we're going to save this world. We're going to offer salvation to people lost in sin. And Jesus says, I take that cup. When we celebrate communion, we need to remember this. Jesus took a cup because his father told him to, not because the world thrust it on him. Can you imagine if Peter had had his way? How would the story have ended if Peter killed a couple of guards, ran away with Jesus, and had Jesus in safety, and said, oh, good, Jesus, you never died. We could just be the 12 of us together. Wow, we wouldn't have much of a God because he'd been proven wrong, and salvation wouldn't have been offered to this world. I want to encourage each of us. We always, I hope, our hearts say we want to honor the Lord, but we really need to be careful that we don't just have ideas and ask God to bless them but that we really take time to listen to him and say, Lord, I sometimes have trouble hearing you, but help me to listen to you. You're my good shepherd. I'm your sheep. I want to listen. I want to obey. I want to trust. That's a great place to be in life. I'm going to just skip forward a little bit just to focus on Peter. 
Uh, Jesus had also said that not only would he run away at times, he would also betray him. And so in this chapter, we see the three betrayals of Peter of Christ. so he follows this mob to the high priest's house. If you can imagine like a U complex that had different rooms all over it. Um, the one man, Annas, he lived in one section. Caiaphas, who was the actual high priest, lived in another section. And there was this common courtyard in the middle. And this is where they, live, uh, this is where they were meeting. And uh, he wasn't supposed to get in there. He got special permission because John had a, had a friend. That friend, as she was letting him into the courtyard, said, uh, you're not one of those disciples, are you? And the girl, and he said, no, I, I'm not. I'm not that. And uh, not to make too much of a connection, but I find it interesting that in the moments just before where Jesus stands and says, I am, moments later, Peter stands and says, I'm not. <laughs> I am not. And uh, so it was a denial of Christ, but it was also... Uh, I think a really neat connection there to say we, we should know our place. And again, uh, so he's warming himself by the fire. The Bible tells us another person asks him, you know, are you a disciple of Jesus? He says, no, I am not. And then a relative of Melchus, the guy who got his ear cut off, says, I'm pretty sure I saw you at the Olive Grove, Peter. You're one of them. And he goes, no, 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 I'm not. And right at that time, the Bible tells us that a rooster began to crow. The Bible, Jesus had told Peter that before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Um, you know what? When that rooster crowed, that was a call to repentance. Just so you know that, God always has our redemption, our reconciliation in mind. When he said that to Peter, it wasn't to put him down. Says, this is just reality, Peter. This is what's going to happen. And you need to know that when that happens, I'm fully aware. And when that rooster crows, that's your sign to repent because you'll finally realize the truth of what I've said. Are you ever slow to learn? Do you ever recognize in retrospect that God was trying to help you or tell you the truth and you just didn't want to listen or you fought against it? No, God, I can do this or I do want to do this to serve you, Lord. Then at the end of it, boom, you realize, wow, Lord, sorry, I, I really wasn't listening to you. I was really self-centered in what I was trying to do. But remember that when the rooster crows in your life, <laughs> that that's God's call to repentance. Luke has a scene, when I read Luke the first time, I remember this is the part that hit me about Luke. It says that after Peter said it, Jesus turned and looked at him. Whew. Wow. I can't imagine the impact on Peter. I'm not sure what that look would have been in Jesus' face, but I know that it still had love. It had compassion. It had a come back to me, Peter, kind of look. Well, after uh, this took place, or actually during the same time of this, the Bible says that meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. So what happened, Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples. They bound him, and then they took him to Annas. And Annas was not officially the high priest anymore, but he had been earlier. And it's a, it's a position that really you keep that title all of your life. And they took him to Annas and then later to Caiaphas. That's why it mentions two high priests in, in the Bible here. But they bound him. That hits me too, to think that my Savior 
was so humble, who can be everywhere. He could be ever-present, all-knowing, all-powerful. He humbled himself to be in a woman's womb for nine months. He humbled himself enough to be a baby, to be a man, limited to our bodies, our type of a body. And then here, he lets himself even be bound for our sin. And much worse happened. But this is a symbol of God's grace to us, that he would let himself even be bound for us. So they ask him, they ask him about his disciples and his teaching, and he says, I've spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I spoke in the synagogues, I've been in the temple, anywhere where the Jews have been, I've spoken there. I haven't said anything in secret. Of course, we know he's had private conversations with his disciples before, but what he's saying is, I'm not leading a conspiracy here, guys. What I say in private and what I say in public, it's the same thing. It's the good news. He doesn't use those words, but it's, it's all about the kingdom of God. It's all about who I am. It's all about life with God. There's no secret here. You don't have to wonder about it. I've said nothing in secret. And then he says, why question me? Ask those who heard me. Uh, Jesus really shouldn't have been questioned on his own. Uh, when you're accused of a crime, you don't have to testify against yourself. They're asking him to do something that he's not supposed to do. Uh, they're supposed to have at least two witnesses that can verify what's been said. And Jesus is just pointing it out. Hey guys, this isn't even a fair trial right now. Uh, there's nothing wrong with a good self-defense. Nothing wrong with that. He's saying, why question me? Go get some witnesses. They're out there. Get them and they'll tell you what you need to hear. You know, this is, uh, this is a neat thing. Ask those who have heard me. Do you appreciate that in our faith about Christ, it is about a real man at a real time who really lived, who really died, who really rose again? You know what's unique about our Christian faith? Is that there's eyewitnesses to what took place. And it's hard in our day and age when we have tabloids and we have newspapers that we know are skewed and stuff to know what's reliable writing. Well, we, it's a different time today than back then. There wasn't everybody blogging their own ideas of what was. Everything that Jesus did that we have in the Bible is there because many, many people witnessed it. When you want to say, why do you believe what you believe? Because well, I believe Jesus is a real person. I believe people saw, heard his teaching. I believe people saw his life, they saw his death, and they saw his resurrection and his ascension. That's a good part of why I believe. This isn't just a fairy tale. This isn't something man made up, wrote a story, and after years people just adopted. I think that's important that there's eyewitnesses for our faith. The soldier beside him Heard Jesus say this. Go ask the people there. He slaps Jesus across the face and says, is that the way you talk to the high priest? And Jesus looks at him and says, if I said something wrong, then testify to what I said wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why do you strike me? Again, there's nothing wrong with a truthful self-defense. He's saying, whoa. In other words, what you just did way off the charts wrong. You had no right to hit me. If I said something wrong... Tell me about it, but what you just did, that's crossing the line again. you got to remember, this whole time, Jesus is in control. It doesn't look that way, but there's never a moment where our Savior is going, ooh, I wonder what I'm going to do next. 
He's always in control, and he calls the shots. His father's calling the shots. But if I spoke the truth, why do you, why do you strike me? I just put the slide on here. It just says, when truth speaks. Truth is not just facts on a page. The Bible says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? Jesus is the truth. When you understand something that's true, that's really a gift of God. It's really a gift of saying, Lord, in that moment, I've heard something. I've learned something about you, how you've created this world, who you are, whatever it is. When truth speaks, the question is, do I hear and do I listen? And do I obey? Church, we need to be a church that listens closely to our Savior. And when he speaks, that that's the most important thing. In your day, that's got to be the most important thing. Honestly, we wake up and say, Lord, I want to hear you today. In your word, through your spirit, through circumstances, I want to hear you so that I know how to obey with the strength of your Holy Spirit. If you want an abundant and full life and you're not listening to God regularly, you won't get it. You will get exactly the opposite. But God has life for us and to the full and he wants us to listen to him. When the guard heard that truth from Jesus, he rebelled. He just kept treating Jesus miserably. He could have repented. At every point in this scenario, just so you know this too, Jesus' heart when he looks at people is for them to, re to repent and to reconcile so they can enter into a right relationship with him. God has a forgiving heart and he just wants us to accept. So he's just had this encounter with the high priest, with Annas. The Bible tells us that he goes to Caiaphas. I think it's probably in that same complex uh, maybe, you know, on a different part of the courtyard, they take him over there. And now they say, you know what, it's time to take him to the Roman governor, Pilate. We're going to take him to his place. So he's still bound. They take him there. And they say, well, you know what, we have to see the governor, but we're not going to go into his house. You know why? Because it's Passover time, and we don't want to do anything wrong so that we can't partake in the meal. Okay, so here's the high priest, the leaders who want to see Jesus killed, who's the Passover lamb, right? They don't understand that. And they're scared to go into a house because they don't want to become unclean. They go there, and Pilate comes out to them. He understands that they won't come into his house because they see that as being defiling themselves. He comes out to them, and he says, what do you want? And they say, well, or he goes, uh, like, why are you coming here? What's this guy done? What are the charges against this man? That's what he says. What are the charges against this man? <laughs> and they don't say a charge. They just said, hey, if he wasn't a criminal, we wouldn't have brought him. That's what they say. If he wasn't a criminal, we wouldn't have brought him. And Pilate looks at them and says, well, why don't you just judge him yourself? Because we can't execute him. It's more or less what they say. Because we can't execute him. We don't have permission to do that. And the Bible tells us, verse 32, this happened so that the words Jesus had spoken indicating the kind of death he was going to die would be fulfilled. You understand that for Jews there was capital punishment, but capital punishment involves stoning. That's the way that they put people to death for crimes committed. They would take stones, huck them at the person until that person died. Romans, on the other hand, lifted people up. They'd either hang them or put them on a, hang them on a cross. And Jews hated that 
Because in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, it says, cursed is the man who dies on a tree. They hate Jesus so much, they don't just want to see him stoned. They want to see he's cursed. See, guys, that Jesus, he's cursed. Can you see the sovereignty of God in the midst of sinful man? I don't understand how God is able to do these things, but he does. He said, my son's going to die for the sins of the world. He's going to die on a cross. And in, in the very act of the Jews rebelling against Jesus and treating him harshly, taking him, treating him in court in ways that he shouldn't have, that very action fulfills Scripture that Jesus would die on a cross for our sake. And we have to say, what an amazing God we have. Pilate goes and he goes inside the house and Jesus is there because he can be unclean, I guess. They throw him in the house and says, are you king of the Jews? And I don't know the voice that Jesus said this to him, but he says, so uh, are you saying that or did people say that to you about me? Why, why do you think that? And he goes, am I a Jew? Am I a Jew that, no, no, it's your guys, it's your leaders who brought you to me. That's why you're here. What have you done? And he says, in fact, I, I am a king, uh, but my kingdom is not of this world. We see that in verse uh, 36. My kingdom is not of this world. If it was of this world, my servants would come and fight for me. But my kingdom is of another place. And then he says these words. He says, in fact, for this reason I was born. And for this reason I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Jesus knew why he was here all the way through John. I hope you get this, right? He's had that redemptive perspective. He was going to die, and he's had a resurrection perspective. He was going to rise again and ascend to his Father. He's always known that. He knew his purpose, and we need to know our purpose. Why do we exist? To glorify God and enjoy him forever, to let him have his way in us. And then he said, my whole life is to testify to the truth and everyone on the side of truth listens to me. The connection here with Old Testament or just farther back in John is, remember what he said about his sheep? I know my sheep and they know me. They hear my voice and they listen. They follow. John 10. Today, as we come to communion, we have the privilege of knowing that Jesus lived his whole life glorifying his Father. That was his first and foremost goal. It wasn't thinking about you and I first. I don't think that's right to say that. Jesus' first goal was to glorify his father. And his father said, you will be glorified, you will glorify me when you die for people lost in their sins so that, I might be, that we might be restored with them. That they might accept what's been done and enter into relationship with me the way that life has been meant to be. I'm going to ask the the worship team to come up right away. And as they do, I just want to read you a quote. And this is a quote that talks about kind of the frailness of our self-determination. We saw Peter, he's well-intended, he wants to protect God, but he's, he's off base. He's not doing the right thing. I just want you to hear these words and, and think about this as we enter into communion. The true Christian life can be explained only in terms of Jesus Christ. And if your life as a Christian can still be explained in terms of you 
your personality, your willpower, your gifts, your talents, your money, your courage, your scholarships, your, de your dedication, your sacrifice, or anything, then although you may have the Christian life, you are not living it. If your life as a Christian can be explained in terms of you, what have you to offer your neighbor next door? The way he lives his life can already be explained in terms of him. As far as he is concerned, the only difference between him and you is that you happen to be religious while he is not. Your life must be the consequence only of God's capacity to reproduce himself in you, however little you may understand this. The people around you must become convinced that the Lord Jesus Christ is himself the essential ingredient of the life you live. Church, that's the joy in front of us. When people ask you, what's the hope you have in Christ? Yes, it's heaven, but it's life with Christ now. And a growing understanding of what it means for Christ to live in us in the power of his Holy Spirit so that he can be glorified and this world can be saved. And if you want purpose in your life, that's where it is. Don't look for it in little things. Find it in Christ. And when we come to the table... We remember what Christ has done to make that possible for us. And we say, praise the Lord.